and part of what's happening here is not just that Jesus is hanging out with them and digs them, but they dig Jesus as well. And this is weird for religion because they're thinking, if you're truly a holy person, a morally upright person, then sinful people shouldn't want to hang out with you. And you certainly shouldn't want to hang out with sinful people. But Jesus isn't just hanging out with sinful people. He's actually befriending them. He's affirming them because to sit down and have dinner with them is part and parcel to saying, man, I just take you as you are and we're good. You're my bro, knuckle bump. This is, this is our relationship. And so religion is watching that unfold in chapter 15, verse one, and they're troubled by that. They're troubled by the fact that Jesus is actually befriending those groups, and they're troubled by it because they're thinking to themselves, if Jesus is truly holy, but he hangs out with unholy people, the reality is that Jesus is an unholy person himself and can never qualify as a truly holy or righteous person. It was from that that then Jesus says to the religious establishment, uh, let me tell you three stories. He says, these stories represent God's heart toward finding people in the margins, toward finding lost people. And so he tells the story about a man that had one sheep that was lost, a woman that had one coin that was lost, and a father that had one son, actually two sons, as we learned in the end, who were lost in different ways. But from those stories, he says, this is the heart of God. God is the one that wants to seek. He wants to find. And when he finds, he celebrates. And God's passionate for this. God is driven to this end. And so God is, uh, is somebody completely different than what you and religion think he is. And so Jesus is trying to drive home the point that what the establishment thought of God is very different than how Jesus is communicating God. So he told these stories to get their attention. But this is a fourth story in, in this stream of thought. So to the religious group, he tells the three stories. But then he pivots out of the religious group and looks at his own disciples to tell this fourth story right here. And he's telling the story to the group of people who will be the movement that will change the world. So he's wanting to get their attention and basically say, religion's been doing it this way for a really long time and they're failing at it. So you guys, I want you to do it different and I want you to listen to how radical my idea really is. And so what he's giving here is kind of his strategy versus religion's strategy. And the means by which his plan succeeds and why religion's plan has failed. So, starting in chapter 16 of the Gospel of Luke, verse 1, it says, Jesus told this story to his disciples. So again, before the stories were the, to the Pharisees, now it's to the disciples. He says, there was a certain rich man who had, uh, who had a manager that was handling his affairs. Then one day... A report came that the manager was wasting his employer's money, so the employer called him and said, what is this I hear about you? Get your report in order because you are going to be fired. So what you want to understand here is that the New Living Translation, that's the version we're using on the screen today, um, it kind of softens the offense of this person. That idea of wasting money, if we go back to the original language that Luke penned this gospel in, it's the same word used of the young man in the previous story wasting all of his money on crazy living. 
So it appears that this particular manager, uh, he, was, um, he was cooking the books uh, that his boss had, and he was skimming the cream off the top, right? That was kind of the fundamental essence. But now his boss has figured it out. I don't know if his boss was like, man, I'm doing the count, Some, something seems crazy or wrong or whatever else. But now this guy's busted. His boss wants to see the ledger. And even though his boss wants to see the ledger, the boss already knows what's gonna happen. So this guy is toast, right? He's getting a pink slip no matter what, he's fired. And so this manager thinks to himself, now what? My boss has fired me. And I don't have the strength to dig ditches and I am too proud to beg, right? So this reminds me of like David and Alexis from Schitt's Creek, if you've ever watched that show. But they're the ones who would be like, begging, ooh, right? Callous is nasty. I don't have to actually do that kind of thing. I don't wanna have to work with a sweaty brow. I don't wanna invest, so this person's really nervous, right? But he's also creative. And the fear of manual labor or begging or whatever else gets him thinking. And so he thinks to himself, ah, I know what I can do to ensure that I will have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I'm fired. So he invited each person who owed him money to his employer to come and discuss the situation. So he asked the first one, how much do you owe him? The man said, well, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager told him, take the bill, quickly change it to 400 gallons. And how much do you owe my employer? He asked another man. And he says, well, I owe him a thousand bushels of wheat. So he says, here, take the bill and change it to 800 bushels. Now, right here, I want to be clear what you're seeing in play. This is evil genius. It's evil genius. And here's why. Here's the first thing. Uh, this guy, he knows he's toast with his boss right? I mean, he's fired. It's over. He's burned that bridge. So here's what you don't want to start to assume about the story, that what he's doing is designed to get him in the good graces again of his boss. That is not what's going on. He's like, all right, I know that one is dead, over, gone. I'm never getting that job back. So instead, what he's trying to do is get in the good graces of everybody else who owes his boss. So he's cutting them all deals so he can have all of them as friends because he knows he's lost his boss as a friend. And think about it, if this was true in your world and you owed somebody money and their accountant came to you and said, you know, I know you owe my boss a thousand bucks, but how about you give me 500 and we'll call it done? You'd be like, I like this guy. He just lowered my debt by 500 bucks. I love this, this is fantastic. And so this is part of the evil genius of this guy, right? Because what he's doing is he's like, I need a lot of friends fast. How can I get a lot of friends fast? I can diversify. So are in on the ruse, right? So they get that like they're a part of this deal making thing. They're rewriting their account. Notice that? It's like, what do you owe? Write this down. They're like, okay, I'll write that down. So they're a little bit culpable in the plan. So this is the quid pro quo of the first century. You give me something, I'll give you something. We'll be in relationship, we're a bit in cahoots. I'm kind of getting secured and you're getting a discount. That's the spirit of this whole thing. So the dude's wheeling, he's dealing, he's cutting corners, he's making connections. But then the story gets crazy because then it says in verse eight, the rich man, right, who was getting the shaft here, says he had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. See, I, I, to me, that's just funny. 
Because this is the guy that started the problem. And now he's digging out of the problem by just fudging all the numbers to fix it. It reminds me of stories like uh, when you hear about the NSA tracks down a hacker. They're like, you hacked into the Pentagon. Want a job? You know, it's like that. Like they, like they see like, oh, you are so conniving. You're brilliant. We will put you on the payroll. And that's kind of what's starting to happen with this particular story here. So the guy starts off with a pink slip, gets so creative, it's like, mm, maybe that's now going to be a raise instead of a pink slip. Like that's where the boss finds himself in the story. And so the story, let's be honest, if you read this somewhere else, you'd be like, okay, that's strange. But you read it in the Bible and you're like, that's weird. That's a weird story. Especially because it's a story on the lips of Jesus. And he seems to be giving some, some credibility, some credence to this kind of conduct. But it's from this that Jesus begins to convert the story into what its lesson is. And so he says from this, he says it's true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of the light. Now, now this isn't quite the lesson yet, but it raises this important principle that Jesus is trying to get at when it comes to his followers. And here's part of the lesson, not totally the lesson, but the lesson kind of in principle format. What he's saying is, if there is this truth that people in our world for the sake of lesser priorities, such as business or money, will do these kinds of things to get the job done when it really doesn't have eternal value, then how much more for those of us who believe there are things of much higher value, how much more should we want to make sure we leverage and invest our resources and our lives in the things that most matter in comparison to things that are lesser and don't matter is much how much more should we want to do jesus's things in jesus's way with more tenacity than even some kind of conniving scoundrel accomplishes these earthly tasks that's kind of the spirit so what he's getting at is you want to leverage your life i want to leverage my life for what really counts and really matters in the end and then from that he tells the moral of the story he says, here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you into an eternal home. See, part of what he's saying to us is don't, don't waste your life. Don't squander your resources on things like your wants, your dreams, your self-indulgences, your nest eggs, whatever it is. Not that having wants and dreams and nest eggs are bad, but if all of our life's focus is in that, he's like, that's wasting your life. Instead, invest things into things that bring flourishing, that build kingdom-oriented and kingdom-minded relationships. He's like, make sure you're doing that more than the other thing. In other words, use all that you have, your abilities, your time, your talents, your money, your thinking, your, your, your connectivity, whatever it is, use all of that to the things that Jesus most desires in this world and for us to bring to this world more than it's just about me and my wishes, my wants, my desires, and, and I'm just here to enjoy it for myself. 
See, that, that's what Jesus is challenging in this very weird story. And I think that's challenging because it does challenge our American sensibilities. Because there is so much about us seeking what we desire, what we want, what our ambition is for life. And, and Jesus is like, no, those are just all tools to make much of me more than to make much of you. So he really is kind of getting on our face a little bit, but in a way that if we go his direction, we'll be inspiring for life. So that's kind of one layer of this the story. That's the practical layer of the story. Use what you have in ingenuity and resource for the sake of others. But there's also a contextual layer, like I said, right? And the contextual layer is still flowing out of chapter 15. And so what it's been is Jesus versus religion. It's kind of grace versus self-righteousness. And, and so you have this basic divide where Jesus is trying to get at this idea of creating friends versus alienating your foes because that's what's been happening. Religion looks at lost people, disbelieving people, marginalized people, messy people, and it says, you're on the outs. And Jesus is like, no, 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 I, I want them to be on the inside, not the outside. And so it's that contextual error that's happening. And here's what Jesus is basically saying. And this is where you have to buckle up because this is where it gets a little tough. But Jesus is saying, you need to make friends. You need to make friends. In the same way, the shrewd manager was making friends by lowering their debts. Or maybe to say it different, you need to learn to make friends by lowering the standards you place on others. Yeah. And that's hard. Because we all love to think we're gracious, we're kind, we're understanding, we're thoughtful. But man, we hold a lot of people to standards, don't we? Our spouses, our kids, our neighbors those on the other side of our political ideologies, those on the other side of our social ideologies, those on the other side of our moral ideologies, we tend to look down so often. And Jesus is trying to get us to, to realize that just like the religious pharisaical establishment that looked down on everybody because they didn't fit the right moral criteria, he's like, you gotta do yourself a favor and bring your expectations down because you're looking down on people when you really don't have the right to look down on people because God looks down on everybody as broken people, yet in grace lifts people up. So Jesus is confronting something that is true to form in our own person. So he uses this very weird story to get our attention so that we go, oh, yeah, I guess the problem is I'm holding people to their own moral, ethical, social, religious debts. And maybe I don't really have a place to do that. Maybe I need to lower the bar. See, this is a parallel kind of story, or maybe to put it different, if you're a sci-fi buff, uh, a parallel universe story. So Jesus is telling this as a kind of like, in a perfect world, it would have gone this way, but in an imperfect world, it went a different way, and therefore he wants to kind of reorient his followers to something new. So let me see if I can kind of piece this together a little bit. In the context, what Jesus is basically saying to the Pharisees, the religious leadership is, um, you're like the failed manager. In other words, you've mis been mishandling God's accounts. You've been mishandling God's truth. You've been mishandling God's people. 
And if you look through the Old Testament prophets and you look at the New Testament witnesses, that's substantiated. Religion had failed because they were, were so oppressive when it came to people. So there in this context, the religious community or the leaders, they're just like the shrewd manager here. And so God's like, you're fired. You're fired because you haven't been a light to the nations. You're fired because you haven't shown that mercy triumphs over judgment. You're fired because you've taken my temple that was meant to be a refuge for all peoples, and it's now all about you and all about your money and all about your power. You've put burdens on people far too heavy to bear. You look down on people you should lift up, and you've held others accountable for sins that you yourselves don't address in your own lives. That's their problem. In other words, Israel was not managing God's business well in their arrogance, in their elitism, and in their pride. And so he's like, you're not reaching people. You're condemning people. You're ostracizing people. You're pushing people out. You're alienating them more than anything else. You're crushing them under impossible loads that they can't bear, and yet you yourselves don't try to do it with any consistency. So Jesus is hard on religion throughout the Gospels. And he's being hard on them in this particular location as well. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, this is what he says to religion. He says, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, they are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. Yet the problem is they crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. From this, he says, what sorrow awaits you, you teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. He says, you won't go in yourselves and you don't let others enter as well. I want to be really clear. I believe the same warning still applies today. It's the warning of when people who say, I've been found by God and I found God. It's when we then put burdens on people that we consider not found by God. We put burdens so heavy that they don't even know how to begin to try to find God because they don't measure up to what it is we think they should do. When that happens, we're no different than Pharisees. Looking down, burdening, piling on things that that don't lead people closer to God, that make them feel like, oh, I've just got to be a better person, or they don't think I'm a good person, and so that makes me a bad person, and that's the ultimate problem. See, this is what Jesus is confronting, but then, like I said, it's a parallel universe. Because as the story's unfolding, what Jesus in part is saying, Israel has failed, they've let God down, and what they should have done then is been like the shrewd manager and lowered their standard. He says that's the ideal, that they would wake up and realize that they're holding people to just really high expectations. And from that high expectation, they're crushing the people around them. That's what they should have realized. And they should have said, oh, wait, then we we get it now. We, We understand that it's mercy and it's grace and it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. We want to double down on that. That's what we want to do. That's what should have happened. We want to be a people for all peoples, a people for the nations, a people for flourishing. But instead, it was all about law and rules and morals, and they double down on their religious standard as opposed to melt under the grace of God and become pliable in his hands. They didn't go the route that Jesus is encouraging in the story. That was where they 
fail. So Jesus is then teaching this. Having just said to the Pharisees, God loves to seek and find. He turns to his disciples and says, here's another story. And I hope in the story, you, you learn to succeed where religion has failed. That you learn to embrace where religion has ostracized. That's his heart. He says, embrace the standard of this individual who wants to win friends, influence hearts, and from that shape, eternity. See, what I love about what Jesus is getting at here is he's trying to help them understand, help us understand in a very uncomfortable way that relationship trumps religion. The people, they trump rules. And seeking lost souls, right, that trumps shunning and shaming those who have lost behaviors. I, I think it's really easy to do that, in fact. I think it's really easy to get so fixated on what people do, we forget who people are. And, and who people are, what they are, they're all image bearers of God. They all have value in his sight. They all have worth to him because he's made them, every single one of them. But we tend to look shallow where God looks deep. We look at the outward appearance, as David says, but God looks at their hearts. And so we should target their heart above all else. Not just their behaviors, but their hearts. Because that's the thing that really matters. In fact, Jesus incarnated this very idea, this idea of like, I want something deeper in them than just their behaviors. In fact, he says this in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. See, here's Jesus looking at all these individuals there in the Gospel of Matthew. He's got religious people there, and he's got marginalized people there. And he's looking at the marginalized people and he's like, man, come to me. I know religion makes you feel terrible, but come to me and I will alleviate the burden. Come to you because I'm gentle and lowly. Come to me because I'll help you understand that you have incredible value in the sight of my father and in the sight of myself. And I want to take the yoke up with you and help you do this life as you learn from me and as I teach you. That is relief and release and rest. In fact, in the context of that, Matthew chapter 11 and going into Matthew chapter 12, as soon as he says that, it goes into this whole debate about Sabbath, right? This legal code that you had to obey. And it's in there that Jesus is like, whoa, wait, you guys have missed it again, religion. You think that people exist to fulfill the moral obligation of the Sabbath, but no, the Sabbath was meant as a grace to bring rest to the person. Don't lose the person for the rules, don't get more lost in the behaviors than the heart, right? So the whole world flips and Jesus does everything in an upside down and backwards sort of way. And what he's looking for is not necessarily people that are ready to be external or moralistic or religious or whatever else. He wants people whose hearts are desperate for God who really honestly see, I need God every day. I need his mercy, I need his grace, I need his strength, I need his rest, because honestly, on my very best, most spiritual, most godly, most moral day, man, 
I cannot do that on my strength at all, and it's going to fail in a thousand ways I never see. What God looks for every day in Matt Boswell is just, Matt, that you can't do it and that you need me is what I'm looking for. More than you think you can do it and others should do it, and if they don't do it, that's their problem. No, he wants us dependent. He wants us humble. He wants us reliant on him, trusting his mercy, his grace, and his rest. Now, is all of this uncomfortable? Sure. I think it's totally uncomfortable, right? This idea of lowering my expectations and standards on others to befriend them starts to feel like, oh, well, we're fudging the numbers here. We're, we're rewriting the books. Oh, you mean like what Jesus encouraged? Right? But, but that's what he's doing. And I want to get another layer to this as it gets uncomfortable. Let me go like, well, wait a minute, though. Is this justifying sin? I, I don't think it's justifying sin at all. I think we're trying to get to the real root of how we address our sin by whackling it. We address it by relying on the one that they're in us and the Christian myth to deal with those things. This idea that, that sin can't be in the presence of God. I was talking, we were talking about that because he's like, and we were talking if sin can't be in the presence of God. Not only is that a myth, that's bad theology. And here's why that's the case. The very idea that sin can't be in the presence of God then says God isn't everywhere. God isn't omnipresent. No, every day sin is in the presence of God. Moreover, here's the most radical idea of all. God was so passionate to make sinful people his friends, he came into this world, came in amidst our sin, and befriended us in our sinful state. I mean, that's what chapter 15 to chapter 16 is all about. God comes and becomes a friend of sinful people. Powerful. You know what's happening when he does that? He's lowering the standards. Not his own internalized standards. What I'm saying is he's making it possible for, for us to experience what we can't do on our own. So in other words, we may not be able to come into the presence of God and live. That's what it says in the Old Testament. So God says, ah, I got a different plan. I will lower some of the bar so I can come and I can come to them and dwell with them and befriend them in their state because that's my grace. Now, again, I know this is freaking us out a little bit. We're like, whoa, wait, where is this going? What is this about? In Luke chapter 7, it says, For John the Baptist, this is Jesus speaking, For John the Baptist didn't spend his time eating bread or drinking wine, and you said he's possessed by a demon. Yet the Son of Man, Jesus, God himself in human form, right? On the other hand, he feasts and drinks, and he says, they say, well, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. So literally, God shows up, God becomes a friend of sinners, religion says he's sinful for doing it, and yet the point is, no, God wants to befriend the sinner, and God is willing to lower expectation and standard to be the friend of sinners, because that's what they need. He says, but wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. In other words, again, while God can't be approached in our capacity, God can approach us in his capacity and to shower us with grace and acceptance. Now again, this is super counterintuitive. It seems really odd to us in some ways. But what Jesus is saying is while this plan seems strange and backwards and upside down, 
the wisdom will be shown in that this model, this style, this way reaches people. That's why he says wisdom will be shown by the fruit it produces. It's like, yeah, it seems odd to moralism, but this is the way of the gospel. In fact, don't take my word for it. Think about something Paul says here that's so interesting as far as what he's willing to do as far as to lower a bar to reach a people. It's in the book of Philippians chapter two. It starts in verse one. He says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? That may be truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take also an interest in others too. And so I, I'm going to stop here for a second because I want us to understand that what Paul is talking about is this idea of being engaged in genuine Christ-centered relationship, selfless relationship, sacrificial relationship, where we're not holding others uh, in high expectations and high accountability to what we think they should be, but we're willing to step in and be something different. We're willing to put others as more important than ourselves in this sense of selflessness and sacrifice. In essence, we're lowering the standard and expectation that we put on others for the sake of coming under them and, and serving them in relationship. That's kind of the essence of this. And then he grounds it in what Jesus did for us. Verse five, he says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he didn't think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up. He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. See, what you have there is an all-glorious, cannot be approached in light God. That's what the Old Testament tells us. God is an inapproachable light. You can't draw near. And he says, you know what? but I'm gonna go ahead and put upon myself this ability to let them draw near. Because I'm, in essence, not lowering my character, not lowering my divinity, but I'm lowering the sense of standard. And I'm embracing them, though it's not expected that God would do such a thing, right? To touch the untouchable, love the unlovable, care for the uncared for. Like, like this whole thing is what Jesus embodies. And so you see this humility in his willingness to engage us, just mere mortals, changing the unapproachable status to approachable in his humility, right? That's what he does for us, even in our sin, our mess, and our debt. He seeks, and he finds, and he rejoices. But that's what it's all about, right? I mean, that's why he told the religious leaders the three stories, he leaves the 99 for the one. He's got nine coins, but he wants the 10th. He's got a wayward son, but he goes after him. He's got an arrogant, proud son, but he goes after him. This is the stuff of the gospel. In other words, everything Jesus does, it's like he leverages all of who he is for the sake of us lowly types. Oh, us, the, the outsiders, the marginalized, the flawed, the broken. And he doesn't do it like a shrewd manager who's trying to make a buck or make some friends. He does it 
as a generous savior, and you and I are his motive. That's the most profound thing to me, right? Here's a God that, that has no need of anything, but he wants us, he longs for us, he values us, and he seeks us. And so I look at this story, and I can't help but think that we should see and sacrifice for the disbelieving just in the same way that Jesus did for us. And, and that from that, we should be patient and befriending of the disbelieving just as Jesus continues to do with us. And honestly, I, I look at this whole story that was so weird. And like, honestly, you know, going through a book of the Bible, you're like, can I skip that story? It's a weird story. But when you dig into the story, you're like, wow, that, that hits us where we live. That hits us where other people live. And if we could get this, own this, believe this, do this, man, I think God could really use this kind of thing in our lives to reach our world. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for awkward, weird storytelling. Like the kind that we usually just kind of gloss over and go, I don't know. I don't know what that says, and we move on. And yet it really does hit us where we live because I think how often I do, I hold other people accountable and have expectations I put on them and I don't want to rewrite the ledger for them in my own superiority. And then you're like, no, Matt, I want you to go make friends and I want you to shape eternity by lowering your standard and befriending them in the same way that you, Jesus, you lowered so much of your standard. I mean, I just look at the Old Testament and all the ways that, that, that you're like, you broke through those barriers. And you're like, no, I, I, people's hearts, people's lives matter above all else. I pray that we are willing to make that kind of investment, sacrificial, humble, thinking of others better than ourselves, being like you, seeing that you went from, from the heights of heaven to literally like the streets of messy humanity. And you said they matter to me. May they matter to us like they matter to you. May we all matter to one another like we matter to you, Jesus. We seek you and need you in your name. Amen.